Thank you all for being here on an early morning. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President and Director of Practice Groups of the Federalist Society, and welcome to the third and best day of the National Lawyers Convention. We're going to begin momentarily with our showcase panel as we continue to launch our years-long project on the role of Congress. Uh, but I want to explain very briefly about our role of Congress and Article I project, as we call it. Uh, the Federal Society, we've spent decades, literally, discussing and examining judicial philosophy and the role of courts. We've developed thinking on executive power and the unitary executive, but we've never really done any systematic long-term work in the area of congressional authority, prerogatives, and responsibilities and duties. We've already had two panels at our convention this year, one on the Founders' original vision of the role of Congress, one asking whether modern-era Congresses have been faithful to that vision, and if so, or if not, with what consequences. This morning, we turn to a discussion of congressional incentives. But before I turn it over to our moderator, I want to assure you that uh, this third showcase panel does not mark the end of our role of Congress project. It will continue well into the future. I think of this uh, third uh, panel as more of marking the end of the beginning of our project. Uh, to lead us this morning, we have a very familiar face, Judge Frank Easterbrook from the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. So with that, I turn it over to you, Judge. Thank, thank you, Dean. Uh, our topic is, can changes in incentives affect congressional dysfunction? The pricey for this panel in your program mentions the problem of passing the buck to the president or agencies via delegation or statutory vagueness. It could have mentioned the enduring problems of developing a budget or facilitating planning. When Congress doesn't act, the business of running a government passes to the executive, which as a practical matter means agencies with special agendas and limited concern for costs. The need to be re-elected surely plays a big role in the lack of effective legislation or control of the agencies. It's hard to legislate without compromise, yet it seems that members who do compromise are at risk of losing their own party's primary. One loss, such as that suffered by former Senator Luger, can discourage a hundred potential compromises. Our roundtable will discuss whether incentives of members can be changed for the better. With six speakers, the time for each is short. We'll open with five-minute presentations, then have a round or two of discussions within the panel, and this will be followed by questions from the floor. I'll introduce the participants in the order of their initial presentation, which turns out to be from that side of the panel to this side. Uh, my introductions will be very brief uh, to save time. Your program contains longer biographies. Francis Lee, who goes first, is a professor of government and politics at the University of Maryland and an editor of the Legislative Studies Quarterly Journal. Richard Pildes, who follows her, is a professor at NYU Law School. Much of his work involves the study of legislation, and he's an author of a leading casebook, The Law of Democracy. James Caesar comes third. He's a professor of politics at Mr. Jefferson's University and has written multiple books on American politics. Next, we'll hear from Michael Greva, who in 2012 joined the law faculty of George Mason after many years at the American Enterprise Institute. He's the author of nine books, 
many concerned with the legislative process. Speaker number five is Matt Weiner, the executive director of the Administrative Conference of the United States. He's also practiced law and spent time advising members of Congress. One of those positions was general counsel to Senator Arlen Specter. And the initial round will close with Howard Berman, a Californian who for 30 years served in the House of Representatives. He practiced the art of the deal and chaired the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Since retiring from Congress in 2013, he's been a senior advisor at Covington and Burling. I turn the floor over to Professor Lee. I appreciate very much the opportunity to be here and to participate in this discussion. So the, the question we were posed is, can changes in incentive significantly address congressional dysfunction? Just asking the question acknowledges what many people across the political spectrum have come to believe, that Congress isn't working well. As we think through the problems of congressional incentives, I'd like to begin by focusing attention on one fact about our political circumstances today. And that's ferocious competition for, inter for institutional control. Since 1980, Democrats and Republicans have each held the presidency about half the time. Divided government has been the normal state of affairs. In both House and Senate since 1980, Democrats and Republicans have each held majority status for nine Congresses. The evenness of this partisan balance is not typical for U.S. history. This first figure just displays a simple measure of two-party competition since the Civil War. It's just the average of the Democratic Party's share of the vote for a president, its share of House seats, and share of Senate seats. Those, are, those three quantities averaged together. I take the difference from 50 so that I can show periods with Democratic majorities above the line and periods with Republican majorities below the line. And taller lines mean that a party is more dominant. Circled on the figure, the, per the period since 1980 stands out from this long time series for its narrow and switching majorities. The more typical pattern for, the long, for this long period is for one party to enjoy a significant advantage over the other. The Republicans were dominant in national affairs for a decade after the Civil War and then again between 1896 and 1932. Democrats were similarly dominant for decades after the New Deal. This, the period most similar to today's competitive environment is the partisan stalemate after the Hayes-Tilden contested election of 1876 until the elections of 1894. These decades of the late 19th century are probably the most analogous period to the present. Like our era, this was, an, this was a period of frequent divided government, strong partisanship, intense partisan conflict, and limited congressional productivity. This second figure just sums up and simplifies the patterns. I'm just displaying the index's divergence from a 50-50 balance for each decade over that period. The closer the bar to zero, the more competitive the decade. As you can see here, the time since 1980 stands out as the longest sustained period of near parity between the parties that we've seen since the Civil War. The contrast between the present and the Congress of most of the 20th century is notable. For roughly half a century after the New Deal, Democrats were a majority in Congress. One might even call them a party of state. For much of this time, Republicans didn't see a path to majority status, and Democrats didn't fear the loss of their majorities. 
But Republicans winning control of the Senate in 1980, combined with Reagan's sweeping victory, gave Republicans a sense that they could offer a national alternative to the Democrats. Since 1980, and even more so since 1994, we've had conditions of tight party competition and party control for national institutions has been in play. Now, what do these circumstances of intense party competition mean for congressional incentives? Uh, first, it raises the partisan stakes in elections. If you wonder why congressional elections have become so nationalized and expensive, it has a lot to do with the fact that there are national stakes in congressional elections when majority control is up for grabs. When one party seemingly held permanent, a permanent majority, it didn't matter nearly so much to any national constituency who won the competitive seats. Two, competition for majority control incentivizes more partisan collective action in Congress. There's much more preoccupation with winning partisan advantage under conditions when the majority might shift. There are many more party meetings than there used to be. Parties in Congress rarely met in caucus during the, er the era of the so-called permanent Democratic majority. But after 1980, the frequency of party meetings increased at a dramatic rate. Third, competition also fuels a more confrontational style of partisanship in Congress. The primary way that parties make an electoral case for themselves is by amplifying their differences. They want to give voters an answer to the question, why should you support us and not the other party? In some form or another, the answer to this question has to be because we're different. Fourth, under these circumstances, both parties in both chambers of Congress spend an inordinate amount of time on partisan messaging. This means staging roll call votes for the explicit purpose of defining differences between the parties rather than passing or amending laws. They have institutionalized elaborate party messaging operations designed to drive media coverage. Fifth, with majority status hanging in the balance, it's hard for Congress to strike deals. Bipartisan deals are politically dangerous because they disappoint party-based constituencies. And that's the last thing you want to do if you can avoid it, if you're looking to win or hold congressional majorities. Finally, because the out party is usually anticipating, anticipating being in a stronger position after the next elections, it's hard to negotiate any settlements to larger political questions. This is one of the underlying reasons for Congress's much lamented tendency to kick the can down the road on so many pressing policy issues. The U.S. constitutional system requires broad consensus to function. But this consensus is especially hard to come by in the midst of an ongoing power struggle for institutional control. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me and including me. I'm always very happy to come to the Federal Society Convention uh, because it's usually such a rich forum for serious exchange of ideas about public policy issues. Um, in five minutes, I'm going to try to uh, suggest three ideas to focus on here. The first is what I call uh, political fragmentation and the need to identify political fragmentation as one of the major contributors to the dysfunction and uh, decline of Congress as a legislative institution. The, the second idea is that the right direction for reform to think about or to focus on in addressing this problem is uh, ways to re-empower the party leadership in Congress. 
Uh, and the third idea uh, I want to suggest is that in considering reforms or solutions, we have to avoid the risk of what I call democratic romanticism. Uh, which I think is very prevalent uh, in some of the reform efforts uh, of the past with respect to congressional uh, process. Uh, so first, on political fragmentation, uh, the world we live in, as Francis has described, is a world of hyperpolarized political parties. The polarization, in my view, is a product of long-term historical transformations in American politics. Uh, that ultimately trace back to the end of the one-party democratic monopoly in the South with the enactment of the Voting Rights Act in 1965. And as a result, over time, the political parties have become much more ideologically coherent, uh, much more unified, and much more sharply differentiated from each other. And because the forces driving the polarization of the parties are long-term and historical, many of the institutional solutions offered to re-empower the center, such as opening up primary elections or ending gerrymandering, are unlikely, in my view, to make a significant dent in the reality of hyperpolarized parties in the United States. I think this is an enduring fact of our democratic era. So the question becomes, in the face of hyperpolarized political parties, how do we make the separated power system work, uh, given the need for uh, cooperation across party lines in this kind of a system? Uh, and this cooperation is going to be required whether we're in unified or divided government, given a routine 60-vote filibuster rule that we now have in the Senate. Uh, so it seems to me the most likely sources of the deal-making and compromising and negotiation that's inevitably necessary to pass budgets uh, and engage in other forms of responses to major issues of the day uh, will be the party leaders in Congress and in the White House. Uh, and the reason for that is that the parties themselves, of course, have the strongest incentives to aggregate the broadest array of national interests of any of the other intermediary organizations in politics. But within the parties, it's the party leaders who have the strongest incentive to try to make the party label as broadly appealing in a national electorate as possible. The question is, in my mind, why have party leaders uh, lost the capacity to actually forge these deals, to bring party members along, to enable these kinds of compromises across the separated powers division and across the divided government uh, world in which we live. Uh, in my view, political fragmentation is a major explanation for this development. By fragmentation, I mean both the external diffusion of political power away from the parties to various outside groups in politics, and I also mean the internal diffusion of political power away from party leaders to individual members of Congress. Uh, so let me focus in particular on the internal diffusion of power away from party leaders. When you look at people like Ted Cruz or Liz Warren one year into the Senate, you see independent entrepreneurs in politics with the capacity to exercise a kind of political power that was inconceivable decades ago for first-year or first-term senators. Uh, Lyndon Johnson could never have exercised the power 
over our politics that either Ted Cruz or Liz Warren have exercised and began to in the very first year in office. I believe the reason for that is the communications revolution and the fundraising revolution, which now enables individual members of Congress to reach out, in, you know, bypassing the organizational structure of the party, bypassing other traditional intermediary organizations to forge a national constituency and to raise money on a national basis in a way that allows them to stand independently of the party leaders and of the party organization. The external diffusion, of course, of power away from the parties is driven in part by the structure of campaign finance law, which has created very strong incentives for money to flow to outside groups like super PACs and away from the political parties. Okay, if fragmentation is the problem, uh, how can we think about re-empowering party leadership in response to this? Uh, and there are many ways of doing this. this. The direction of reform is what I'm mainly interested in emphasizing, focusing on re-empowering party leadership. One suggestion I have is to work through the campaign finance system to try to get more money back into the parties and to give the parties more of an effective role in the political process. Um, there are various ways to imagine doing that, from more minor to more radical. Uh, number one, we could raise the contribution caps to the political parties, encourage money in that way to go to the parties. Number two, we could increase the ability of parties to coordinate with candidates and campaigns in a way that's currently prohibited by the campaign finance laws. Third, more radically, uh, if you think about public financing systems as an option, which we do have in a number of states, and there's a lot of movement in that direction in some states, at least, um, the public financing system one imagines could be run not through individual candidates, but through the political parties much more, which is not the way it's done in any of the uh, public financing systems we do have at the state level. Uh, but generally speaking, getting more money into the political parties uh, would be a way of centralizing or trying to help re-centralize uh, some control. Um, on the third point, democratic romanticism, I think many of the reforms of the last 30 years have contributed to political fragmentation and made it more difficult for creating the conditions under which compromise, deal-making, and the like is possible in Congress. For example, the tremendous emphasis on transparency uh, which has now made the processes of negotiation so much more open uh, and made it so much more difficult in many ways to engage in the kind of deal-making uh, that's necessary. Uh, the American Political Science Association actually has a very powerful study uh, that argues that we should focus more now on transparency of result and rationales for results explaining outcomes, uh, much like court decisions. You get full transparency of outcome and reason and justification, uh, but put less emphasis on transparency of process. Uh, one can certainly ask whether the end of earmarks uh, has contributed to making it more difficult uh, for political party leaders to grease the wheels to make the kinds of deals that are necessary uh, to gain compromise across these lines in this separated power system. 
so to summarize, uh, I think political fragmentation is something we have not focused on nearly enough. I think re-empowering party leaders is the right direction to envision reform. Um, none of that tends to be very popular since there's so much disdain for political parties and for party elites. Um, but that's the direction of thought that I think uh, may be the most productive given a world of polarized parties that is likely to be an enduring fact of our politics. Well, thanks for the Is this on? thanks for the opportunity to appear before the Federalist Society, even though I'm not a member of the bar. Um, Federalist me, to me means the Constitution and the Federalist Papers. My license plate is Federalist 49, the paper that calls for reverence for the Constitution. And that plate is meant to be a reminder to all on the road, especially those who tailgate, of the need, of the need to respect the Constitution. Now, the problem, it seems to me, with Congress today is at the constitutional level. The issue is not really one of compromise or polarization or any such political problem. We always have political problems. It's a problem of the effective uh, lack of power, lack of effective power of Congress. So uh, with the result that we don't have proper constitutional balance in our system today. Notice uh, that I said the, the problem is a difficulty for Congress. Uh, I didn't express it as a, um, in the obverse term of the imperial presidency or the imperial bureaucracy. Of course, these are related. But if you put the focus on the uh, imperial presidency and the bureaucracy, uh, you don't really put the, the focus on Congress. The problem is with Congress. Congress should somehow be in a position to stop what it doesn't like. Why can't Congress somehow protect itself and deter or stop the president or reign in the administrative branch of government today? That, as I see it, is the difficulty. The main problem, then, is that Congress is not sufficiently feared by the president, nor by members of the cabinet, nor certainly by administrators um, under the president's protection many of whom come to Congress and, uh, frankly, just treat it in all these hearings with the back of their hand, as if it's not the first branch of government. Um, the first branch of government ought to be feared. Not only is uh, Congress unable to get uh, more of what it wants, but it seems unable to protect itself and to make others pay sufficiently for crossing it, if it could uh, make it, uh, others pay. Of course, they wouldn't bring challenges, uh, so many challenges to Congress in the first place. Thus, when Congress does not simply roll over and accept its lowly plight or whine, it's sometimes like the weakling being abused by a schoolyard bully, goes running to the equivalent of the school psych psychological counselor, I'm speaking of the Supreme Court, and asks the Supreme Court to help it out. John Boehner almost wore out the soles of his shoes running to the court. Of course, I'm not saying that the court has no role to play in policing the boundaries between the institutions. But the original scheme imagined that the, each power itself, each branch itself, would have the ability to stand up for itself and to check the other branch. Congress is often called the first branch, as I mentioned, and in the, the Federalist Papers, um, 
this power is assigned to the Congress, which, if you look at the, the Federalist Papers, seems to, to spell out the idea that Congress would be the branch that would be most feared in our system, to the point that it would go to the edge, or even beyond the edge, in the exercise of its powers. Um, I'm not saying, obviously, that the President today is so strong and Congress so weak that uh, the President can force Congress to adopt new laws. That, that's obviously not the case. Look, over the last three years, the President hasn't gotten anything of what he's wanted. Um, nor am I claiming that uh, Congress is to be so powerful that it can force the President over his veto to do what Congress wants. <clears throat> Excuse me. What I am saying is that in the battle and contest between President and Congress and administration, uh, Congress doesn't seem to be able to push its way or get its weight. And uh, the issue here, again going to the, the Federalist Papers, is not always direct power of legislation, but what the Federalist speaks of is indirect powers, the power to be able to get what you want by making someone else fear you not necessarily on a specific piece of legislation, but to let another branch know that if it should cost Congress, if it should go too far, there will be a penalty to pay. That, I believe, is what Congress has lost. Now, what was the source of that power to overawe the other branch that Congress was supposed to possess? One was that it was the more representative institution in our country today. Of course, it seems that the President has taken over this role. Uh, at least since the uh, beginning of this century, we think of the president as the initiator and the active voice. And of course, um, in this century and for a long time, Congress has been run down and disparaged, not as a representative branch, but as an unrepresentative branch. Today, for example, it's said that Congress is dysfunctional. Um, this is repeated time and time again. This is really nothing more but an invention of the Washington punditocracy to beat down Republicans in Congress. Either you do what the President wants or you're judged dysfunctional. And if you're judged dysfunctional, the President, of course, has the rightful and legitimate claim to assume all powers in the U.S. government, administrative and legislative. <clears throat> the other problem, uh, the other source of power, indirect power, Article 1, Section 9, is more important. It's the power of the purse or the power of appropriation. And Madison in that Federalist paper says that really was, if you look at constitutional history, that really was the key of the power of Parliament, in which uh, Parliament was able to uh, stand up to the, to the monarchy, not by direct legislation, but simply by appropriations. That's an indirect means, in other words, of uh, disciplining and punishing and making others fear you. Well, this power, it seems, in some way or other, intuitively, has slipped away in the original meaning. It slipped away little by little, and uh, uh, to the extent we speak of uh, the appropriations power today, we speak of it in terms of budgeting. Budgeting and appropriation are linked, but they're not the same thing. Budgeting, it seems to me, is a, has been, uh, in this, uh, uh, this century, a concern for the overall spending of, of Congress. And almost all the literature is on overall spending of the government. But the appropriations process and the power of the purse is really more than that. It's the power to be able to punish and hold to account down to the very most minute level what uh, uh, the president and the administration has done. We think so much about budgeting that we forgot really about the 
other part, and in many ways the more important part of the appropriation process. So uh, what I have in mind by the appropriation process today, the problem, is that the House or Senate, uh, uh, either one of them, is not in a position, it's put itself not in the position of leaving the others to tremble before it. And the reason this has occurred, uh, this change of power in the, in the uh, congressional process, has to do with the, uh, the, the budget laws of the, of, of the United States today and the real power of the appropriations process is not part of the legislative process. Yes, appropriation means, how much time do I have? Negative three minutes. Negative three minutes, okay. <laughs> well, then I'll, I'll finish in negative one. <laughs> the real power of the appropriations uh, uh, committees is, is, uh, does not come through the need to legislate, which, once you admit that, already turns half the power of appropriations over to the president. The real power of the appropriations process is simply not to legislate. That is the key. And the way this would have to be enforced uh, by, by Congress uh, today is really to simply uh, stop legislating and stop giving money. That can only be done by breaking up the whole budgeting process into minute parts, such that Congress would not have to fear that by not legislating, the charge would be made that it shuts down the government or that it shuts down a whole part of the government. That's a charge uh, a, a way too heavy to bear. The conclusion is break up the appropriations process into tiny pieces whenever and wherever the Congress would like. Okay. Um, thanks, uh, Judge Easterbrook, and thank you all for uh, being here and uh, to the Federalist Society for the invitation. Um, one of the problems Madison confronts in the, in the Federalist Papers is a two-sided problem of representation. On the one hand, you want your representatives not to go into business for themselves, so you want to keep them close, and that means they have to be elected, and then there have to be certain auxiliary precautions, as Madison calls some separation of powers, which among other things is, reduces sort of our citizens' monitoring costs, because these people, properly incentivized, will rat on each other. Um, the flip side of this problem is what keeps these characters from behaving like these pigs in the state legislatures? And the answer to that is the theory of the um, extended republic, um, right? You create large districts, you create some distance from home. This will be productive of civic-minded, public-spirited legislators. And then you create additional distance, uh, fixed terms, no recall, distance from home. All of that is calculated to create, as Judge Easterbrook once wrote in a terrific article, certain amount of agency slack. And everything that comes now is derivative of that article. Slack to do what? Um, in Madison's world, the answer was something like deliberation. Um, Congress can deliberate. Um, that turned out to be an epic fail. Um, I teach my students the first post-Rhodes debate where they have this big debate about um, should we allow the president or the postmaster general to designate post-Rhodes because if we try to do this by ourselves, one of two things will happen. Either no post-Rhodes will be built 
or there will be post roads to nowhere all over this great continent. Um, James Madison says, no, surely we are better than that. We can deliberate. Yeah, good luck to you. Um, that never worked. But what there was enough slack for was transactional politics. Right? And we created institutions on top of it, none of them, interestingly enough, in the Constitution, that make transactional politics work. Parties, committees, administrative agencies that basically administer the consensus uh, of congressional committees on an ongoing basis. All of that has changed dramatically. Parties have weakened, committees have weakened, agencies are no longer the extended arms of Congress. They're instruments of executive power. Um, and gone with that is every, all the agency slack that there used to be in the system uh, with respect to legislators, right? They're perfectly monitored 24-7, and that means deals can't get done, and as Judge Easterbrook said at the front end, power migrates. How did that happen? Here I'm with Rick Pildes. Um, part of it is simply technology, improved um, communication, uh, much lower monitoring costs, much greater ability to punish people. Um, the other part is um, what Rick called a romanticized um, understanding of democracy, and I should emphasize that this is um, not a partisan thing at all. It's popular, as Jonathan Rausch has observed, populists, progressives, libertarians, they all hate transactional politics, they all love transparency and accountability. Who benefits from this at the end of the day? Well, big, highly organized interests on one side and the highly motivated on the other, also known as nutcases. And so <laughs> you end up with this, um, with crony capitalism and a polarized politics at the same time. Uh, Rick mentioned the uh, APSA uh, proposal, citizens should demand um, transparency in rationale, not process. I think that particular um, proposal suffers from the same romantic understanding of politics um, uh, that is being criticized there. Uh, I mean, first of all, where does the APSA get off uh, telling American citizens what they should demand? And the second thing is, if you have a transparent rationale, how do we know that they don't lie? And the answer is open up the process, make that more transparent. Um, it, this is a losing game, it seems to me. What you have to do is make the system less democratic. Um, that's just another way of saying creating agency slack. And what you have to do to that end is to rebuild institutions that can give the legislators cover and that have the ability to reward them. Uh, in one way or another. How to do that, I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I, I'm not sure what qualifications I have to sit on this panel. Um, perhaps not. I'm actually a, a, a last-minute substitute of sorts. Uh, be that as it may, I'm very pleased to be here uh, with this distinguished uh, legal company. and. Um, I thank the Federalist Society for inviting me. Before I say anything further, let me, uh, let me issue a disclaimer in case it's not Im implied, uh, namely that I'm not speaking on behalf of the Administrative Conference of the United States, the federal agency for which I serve as, uh, to which I serve as the executive director. 
insofar as I uh, possess any expertise on anything that bears on today's topics, it's the subject of administrative law. And so let me see if I can briefly say uh, something on that subject as it relates to the question of uh, congressional incentives and dysfunction. The last, uh, the last three Congresses have seen a spate of ambitious uh, bills to reform administrative law, uh, all or, or nearly all of them introduced by Republicans. Very few of them have had any Democratic support. The most ambitious of them, the Reins Act, as it's known, uh, was even endorsed, I'm told, because I don't watch the Republican debate, by the debates by several Republican candidates at the last presidential debate. Uh, and what the act would do would be to deny effect to, quote, major agency regulations unless they were approved by a joint resolution of Congress signed by the President within a relatively short time frame after their promulgation by the agency. Most of these bills, including the, the House-passed Regulatory Accountability Act, seek to cabin agency discretion in some manner or another. And they do so, for instance, by imposing stringent analytical requirements on agencies and uh, requiring trial-like, requiring agencies to use trial-like adjudicatory procedures uh, uh, in place of the, the, the now familiar uh, notice and comment rulemaking procedures. These procedures would, to use a, a, a phrase that uh, then-Professor Scalia used in the 1970s, um, would effectively judicialize uh, what has been for many years uh, an informal legislative-like mechanism for promulgating regulations. In my view, many of these bills are, are, are misguided, and they're, and they're too bound up with an aggressive, partisan, and short-term deregulatory agenda uh, to command any broad-based support. Uh, but as a Democrat, though, myself, with, with some populist leanings, I can't help but endorsing at least one of the rationales commonly advanced uh, to support this, these, these legislative initiatives, and that is that administrative agencies, by and large, wield too much policy-making power. Uh, but the congressional sh response should not be to constrain agencies by encumbering them, uh, uh, encumbering the rulemaking process uh, with judicialized procedures, uh, analytical requirements, expanded judicial review, and so forth. Uh, all these are fraught with problems, as, as past experience well demonstrates. Uh, but to stop delegating so much policy-making power to agencies in the first place. And I like to imagine, I, I guess in my more naive moments, uh, that this form of regulatory reform might have cross-party appeal in a way that the current proposals don't. Uh, for it's not bound up with uh, the question whether, as Republican proponents of these legislative initiatives insist, uh, there's too much, uh, whether too much regulation uh, encumbers the regulatory process. And here, here briefly is the thesis I'll just put on the table and, and, and not really defend, but throw out there. Uh, excessive delegation to agencies is both a cause and effect of congressional dysfunction. As, uh, Several commentators have suggested, um, prominent among them, uh, uh, Naomi Rao, uh, who's a member of the Federal Society, I believe, of, in any event, of George Mason, delegation to agencies increases the agency's sphere of policy-making policy influence, and in doing so provides relatively low-cost opportunity for individual members of Congress, as opposed to Congress itself acting pursuant to its Article I powers, to aggrandize their own individual powers by inserting themselves into the executive branch's 
administrative activities. This takes any number of familiar forms, uh, targeted oversight hearings called, attended by and conducted by a single senator, private meetings with agency rulemakers, burdensome demands for information, the imposition of reporting requirements on agencies by individual members of Congress through committee reports and so on and so forth. Invariably, the, uh, the individual members' activities uh, are on behalf of an interest group, uh, sometimes acting in the name of the public interest, uh, from whose support the legislature benefits. It's a particular problem, as, 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 as many have said, in the context, uh, in the case of uh, independent administrative agency. All this has uh, deleterious effects on public administration with the executive, within the executive branch, not the least of them the misallocation uh, of public resources to satisfy the demands of individual legislatures. But the concern I'd, I'd like to put on the table this morning, uh, 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 again, echoing the work of scholars familiar to many of you, and including uh, Naomi, uh, is that excessive delegation reduces Congress's actual Article I powers uh, by inviting individual members of Congress to invade the administrative sphere belonging to the executive at the expense of attending to the business of actually legislating. Uh, I'm not sure how to realign the incentives for Congress and, and what institution of government uh, should attempt it. One proposed response, of course, is some revival of the non-delegation doctrine uh, on judicial review of agency action. Uh, here I'm skeptical, not only because I doubt uh, whether there are any judicially administrable rules for deciding what powers may be delegated and to what extent, but, but also because I don't think courts should be in the business of protecting uh, congressional prerogatives. Reforms must ultimately come, I think, from Congress itself. And I'll offer one uh, immediate, uh, one, one small suggestion that um, uh, immediately comes to mind. Uh, one, one start for Congress to return to the re regulatory reform legislation that I began my remarks with would be to pass legislation to authorize uh, a power presidents may and probably already have, but have not exercised to their full extent, and that is the power to oversee the rulemaking activities of independent agency. It's common wisdom that the administration of those agencies is especially susceptible to fact-laden influence of individual members of Congress and especially committee chairs. Just a few weeks ago, uh, the Senate Homeland Security Committee favorably reported a piece of legislation, a bill, I think, it was, I think it was S-1607, if I have the number right, that would authorize presidential oversight over independent agencies' rulemaking activities. And the bill enjoys the the bill enjoys the support of some Democrats uh, and the ABA set, set section of administrative law. I think that's an encouraging encouraging sign. One interesting question, which, on which I'll end, is whether President Obama would sign such legislation. Thank you. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Uh, thank. The Federal Society for inviting me. It, this is a first-time experience, uh, and uh, I was—I'm—I'm I'm last for a reason, and that is part of uh, my initial conversation was uh, that 
to sort of react to what the other panelists have said as one who spent 30 years in the Congress, uh, and that's a good substitute for original thought. And, um, <laughs> and, uh, and so I'll take a few minutes uh, to do all that. But underlying what I've heard is, well, let me put it differently. People, by and large, do not run for Congress in order to strengthen Congress as an institution. They have ideological motions, uh, uh, motivations and, and, and a political agenda, and maybe uh, uh, they like the idea of being in Congress because uh, they can get more attention or they can be away from home a lot of the time or... or <laughs> But, but they are not running thinking about Article I, uh, the Congress, the institutional role that it has. And to the contrary, I think a lot of analysis, even from thoughtful people, is what is the consequence to my own political views of, of, of what's happening so that Democrats are going to be far more interested in curtailing excessive executive branch authority when a Republican is the president and, uh, and the agencies that he's appointed are engaged in all kinds of, of uh, uh, creative new uh, definitions of their authority uh, and vice versa. And this isn't in case you want to go to the easiest conclusion, which is this is the way Democrats think, um, I watched over and over again uh, Republicans, uh, the same Republicans who feel deeply about states' rights and federalism and, 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 and not treading in areas that were reserved for the states, when an issue like federalizing medical malpractice remedies comes up, uh, under pressure, all kinds of different political pressures, and because they may think that lots of trial lawyers are scumbags, and because there's no justification for kinds of awards that people are getting, and because they're concerned about the cost to business of insurance rates and hospitals and things like this, will be quick to want to federalize something that historically had been left to the states. And of course, Democrats, uh, well, of course, flipped their position where they were quite willing to federalize almost anything, uh, and but 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 see a logic in uh, a tort system, which especially where regulations aren't uh, working that well, a tort system that provides disincentives to do bad things, will immediately flip and become champions of states' rights and preserving uh, uh, this authority. In other words, it gets very situational, uh, and. And uh, I guess Professor Lee articulated, I would argue in terms of the House of Representatives, it, ha it was really started in 1994. Uh, there is no doubt when I came to the House, there was a sense that the Democratic Party had the best entitlement program of all, which was uh, entitled to be in the majority and uh, uh, of the House. And, and that there was almost an acceptance of that 
by the minority. And we will work together very nicely and, and we'll, we'll, we'll do things you need, Republicans. And, and Newt Gingrich and a group of his folks changed that model. And since that time, the ferocious battle for control dominates almost everything else that goes on. Uh, and you add to that other things that have happened in, in politics. Uh, the brief the, uh, reference was made to the media revolution. The, I myself like a lot of slack in this agency theory. Uh, it's much harder to get that slack these days uh, for all kinds of reasons, uh, particularly the, the changing nature of media attention. Uh, sort of the transparency that comes with all of that. Um, I would like to react to the notion that we, uh, the transparency of results uh, in, in the judicial setting, that, that sounds very good and I think it's very valuable. Uh, I'm not sure people would be excited by knowing why something happened uh, and what motivated the people who voted a certain way. Uh, I'm not sure how, trans by and large, I do think the transparency, the growing transparency is an impediment to, to working out deals and, and reaching agreements between parties and diverse political groups because, uh, but there are other factors as well. In the Democratic Party, it started, in the McGovern reforms, uh, we talk about strong party leadership in the political parties and strong House leadership, but we had that, and it was lost. And the people who now have more power because that power was lost are going to fight till the death to stop it from turning back. And even someone like our new speaker, uh, Paul Ryan, uh, uh, maybe the only single person in the House that could have gotten 218 votes uh, to replace uh, uh, John Boehner. Um, what did he have to do as part of getting this? He had to talk about empowering more the individual members of the House, constraints on uh, the role of leadership, regular order, committees doing their work, bringing it to the floor. In other words, decentralizing further uh, the kind of, of strength and leadership that could make things happen. So um, I'm particularly skeptical of getting a Congress that's a creation of all the things that have happened uh, since uh, starting in the 1960s with the Civil Rights Movement and the very fundamental change in the Democratic Party. Ronald Reagan didn't need a Republican House to get overwhelming passage of his 1981 and 82 reforms because the Democratic Party in the House was very different in 1981 and 82 than it is now. Um, these days, it's, it's, it's uh, monolithic is the wrong term, but it is much more unified in its perspective on what should happen than it was before. Uh, on the Republican side, I think the differences are less, although I think for certain purposes uh, there, are there are strains there you see as well, uh, not as large as there were in the Democratic Party back in those days. So uh, those are just a few initial comments about, uh, uh, about, I think, the difficulty of thinking that 
that Congress, Congress will end up being able to make institutional changes to, to create a better balance between the branches. But there is one other thing, and that is effective and strong leadership. Uh, and the right, uh, I, it's not institutional, it's not legislated, but to the extent that happens well, uh, that is in the end the, the way to reduce dysfunction. Thank you very much. I promised there would be a, a round, at least one round of exchanges within the panel. Uh, I, I was listening carefully and there was a paucity of solutions. There were a lot of diagnoses, uh, but I'm, I think many people share Professor Griva's reaction. What are we going to do? What I recall him saying is, quote, I have no idea. Uh, perhaps it would be a good idea to discuss uh, the proposals of two people who thought they had an idea, uh, both Professor Pildes uh, and Mr. Berman said, greater authority in the leadership. Uh, the, the question is, how would one make that happen? And, and let me open this up to the panel. How do you do that without strong party discipline in a world in which uh, as Mr. Berman pointed out, to become the current speaker, the speaker had to promise less central control. What can you do? You, you can imagine changing uh, the, camp, the rules of campaign financing to make party-based financing more important, uh, but the First Amendment would stand in the way because independent expenditures can't be controlled. You could imagine new seniority rules so that legislative entrepreneurs lose vital positions. It doesn't seem that the current House would support that. Uh, you could imagine new slating and primary rules to make the United States more like the United Kingdom so that the national party, rather than, say, local primaries or caucuses, pick candidates. Uh, I think you could imagine other things, uh, but I, I want to throw open to the panel whether any of these imaginings or other things that they might have in mind uh, is feasible, and then, of course, how you would get from here to there. Um, let me start with Professor Pildes and then Mr. Berman, and then I'll open this up generally because I want to build on their thoughts. Well, thanks very much for the, for the question. So on the party-based financing, it's true that under, <clears throat> under Buckley versus Vallejo, uh, you can't cap outside spending. But we don't know that much about the distribution of, of the outside spending that's motivated by people or actors who would actually prefer, would have been happy to have that money go to the parties if they could versus groups like, let's say, the Club for Growth, which clearly wants to stand outside the party structure, raise money and spend money in that way. Uh, my own uh, sort of feel for the system and the various players in the system is that you would, in fact, bring back a significant amount of money into the parties if these campaign finance reforms were made that did things like raise caps to the parties uh, and uh, uh, allow greater coordination between the parties and the campaigns. Uh, and then even at the state level, when I was talking about public financing through the parties, 
Reformers don't think this way at all in the United States because we have such an individual-based, candidate-based system of elections. Uh, and so if party-based financing, for example, were to emerge in some states um, as a model, it would be very interesting to see the extent to which it, it, it made a difference in these ways. I'll tell you one thing concretely uh, to, to sort of demonstrate this point. There is good empirical work that now shows that states in which there are no caps on contributions to parties have significantly less polarized legislatures than states in which there are contribution caps to the parties. So there's actually some empirical evidence that supports this kind of theory that I'm trying to put forward. Uh, here. And I agree with you that thinking about getting more control over the primary process or whether uh, there's any way to move back from a system initiated by the McGovern reforms initially and, and then what we've come to accept is normal now, you know, whether there might be a greater role for the parties to get involved in uh, candidate slating uh, could be another significant way of empowering the forces of leadership control and direction of the party. Mm -hmm. well, just just to, to react a little bit to that, first of all, I have to tell you, the parties in Congress play a much, much larger role in financing congressional campaigns than they did 30 or 40 years ago. Um, uh, uh, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. When I got there, they used to give out $250 as, a, as, as, as the contribution. Um, you now have huge fundraising operations by the party committees. You have obligations of the members to their leadership to provide huge amounts of money, and they play a much, much bigger role. The one thing on campaign finance reform that I have concluded, uh, including the stuff I stupidly voted for, is the unintended consequences of things we knew in the name of cleaning up the system and reform are far worse than the problems we were trying to correct. And, uh, and some combination of things have led us to this way. And there is no way you are going to constitutionally and legitimately preclude the ability of whether it's the National Rifle Association or organized labor or other groups to develop through the contribution of money close relationships with individual members just in case that top leadership strays from the path that they want them to take. Mm -hmm. Professor Lee, anything on this topic? I would just uh, reinforce uh, points just made by Mr. Berman that in terms of thinking about leadership power in the contemporary Congress, the, the party leaders are much more powerful than they used to be. The policymaking tends to get worked out in leadership offices, not in committees. Uh, that, you know, at, you know, the Freedom Caucus rebellion notwithstanding, I, I, I see little uh, that w will dramatically change this. It, it's hard, you know, reflecting back on these shifts, it's hard to think that this greater centralization of the process in Congress has made Congress work better. You know, one of Congress's strengths was the policy expertise that members possessed on matters that came before the jurisdictions of their 
uh, of the committees on which they served. And as, as decision-making gets centralized more in leadership, we have uh, less opportunity to capitalize on the expertise of, 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 of members uh, you know, that they, they at least say they used to be beneficial to the process. That uh, I, I think uh, Jim Caesar is on to something instead by suggesting more decentralization, that Congress might be more effective in, in getting more of what it wants if it, if it focuses uh, its, its fire in particular areas rather than attempting to get big package deals uh, that would, uh, you know, would be worked out by leaders. Mr. Caesar? Well, briefly, this isn't a constitutional issue, but an internal organization. But insofar as I have an opinion, I'm against czars. And I'm surprised to hear this uh, um, movement now to bring back czar, canon, and reed for the modern uh, House and, and Senate. Against it altogether, I think, uh, as Francis suggested, the problem is the opposite. It's that the members of, of the houses don't feel they have enough invested, that all the deals are made at the top between five or six people. Um, and the absence of uh, power in committees means, uh, for whatever it's worth, uh, that polarization, if that's the problem, will continue. Because the only way you break it down would be people working together in smaller units and feeling that they at least had some say and had to work things out. Otherwise, it's all power in the hands of the, uh, the, the party leaders, which is uh, an invitation for polarization. I agree with all of that. Uh, just to rephrase it, what you need is not followership, I mean leadership and followership, what you need is a structure, a hierarchy. Right? And uh, I agree with Judge Easterbrook, it's inconceivable to me that you could bring back the seniority system. Nobody will believe that ever. And so you have to find some organizational system of, I mean, some system of organization that replicates the role that leadership, want, uh, that, sorry, that seniority once played. And um, I have no idea, once again, I have no idea what that might be. Um, I, I, I don't have much to add other than that any, anything that I would say that would be uh, any, any prescriptions I would have would, would involve campaign finance law, uh, m m changes to the finance, uh, the campaign financing system, and I suspect that uh, all of them would, would, would run afoul of the First Amendment as it's uh, currently interpreted. And uh, I, I, I suppose in, in uh, well, I'll leave it there. <laughs> Thank you very much. We We've now had a, a round of discussion uh, that I tried to set up with a question. I'd, I'd like to open it up to the panel generally to respond to what other members of the panel have said. And if anybody can come up with a brilliant new idea, this is the time. <laughs> Professor Lee? I'm lacking in a brilliant new idea. <laughs> I think I need to follow Mr. Berman's example and react to what others might put on the table. <laughs> Professor Pildes? I kind of tempted to just follow Francis Lee's gracious model here and uh, listen to other people a little bit more before speaking again. <laughs> Professor Caesar, if everybody be suddenly becomes a listener, this is going to be a pretty dead panel. <laughs> well, um, I've had a lot of ideas over my career, but never a brilliant one. So uh, I'll pass too to Mike. <laughs> So we now turn it over to the man who's twice said he has no idea. 
third time's the charm. Um, I'll, I'll just say one thing, um, which is much of this discussion, I mean, I agree with the sentiment that polarization is the new normal, fragmentation is the new normal. Uh, I don't think those are transient phenomena, that they have very deep roots. Um, any change to the current sort of predicament that I can envision at all um, would involve some shock to the system. Um, Matt mentioned the, uh, the delegation, uh, wholesale delegations that Congress engages in. Uh, I think that will end only if the partisan constellation switches and a Republican president shows the Democrats in Congress that he too can do really, really bad things to them with all the power that they've delegated and that there's sort of at least on that issue or around that cluster of issues some bipartisan or not bipartisan but generally broad consensus that ooh, oh, um, this may cut both ways and maybe it's a good idea to bring a little more order to this and, and have Congress take a larger role in legislating. Mr. Weiner. Uh, I, 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 I guess I have to... Uh I have to enter the same plea as some of the other panelists. I've been sort of, uh, sort of wondering uh, who, 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 uh, who, who uh, hatched the idea for this panel, and uh, who, who thought perhaps that uh, uh, that the Federal Society on a Saturday morning could uh, uh, could could uh, deal with such an intractable uh, and difficult problem. Uh, so I don't really have anything specific to say. Uh, I think Mr. Weiner has just said we need to empower the leadership of the Federalist Society in order to improve panel dysfunction. <laughs> Mr. Berman. I, this is where I started, so I don't have to. <laughs> I, just, I just say, for Democrats, they had a feeling that what you hoped might happen in order to create the willingness to curtail executive functions, they think happened between 2000 and 2006. Well, thank you very much. Uh, and as everybody at the Federalist Society knows, it is now time uh, for questions. We have three microphones over there, over there, and over there. Uh, I do want to point out that this is a time for questions. Uh, that's something that's reasonably short and ends with a question mark. Uh, I would appreciate it if you would state your name and affiliation if that's appropriate, then state your question. If you're directing it to a particular member of the panel, uh, let him or her know, and we are off. I'll turn to the center microphone. Uh, thank you very much. I think it's been a great panel so far. This question is for Professor Pildes. My name is Steve Klein from the Pillar of Law Institute, and I work on campaign finance issues. Um, it's, it's a bit of an inside baseball question, because I think, especially in the last few months, your suggestions in this political realism school have really caught fire, even to the point where, as far as raising fundraising limits for the, the parties, we had the McCutcheon decision, which helped that, but then we had the Cromnibus uh, bill last year in Congress, where they even raised the limits themselves. And now it's become Commissioner Lee Goodman, a Republican commissioner at the FEC, who the reform community 
typically vilifies is in support of many of these ideas. And even the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU, certain attorneys there are very supportive of these empowerment ideas. So on the inside baseball level, how, how are these, do you see these reforms actually going? Because it seems that support is really lining up behind them. I agree completely with that. I think that more and more players who are familiar with the campaign finance system, including justices on the Supreme Court, and you see this even from Justice Kennedy going back a number of years, but certainly Justice Breyer, I think many members of the court are much more aware of how McCain-Feingold has been a major inducement to the flow of money to all of these outside organizations. The acceptance of the reality that regulation cannot really cut off the flow of money, it can just channel it along one path or another, and that if that's the case, it may be much better for the democratic system to channel that money through the political parties, which are accountable in various sorts of ways, rather than through these outside groups. You know, I think that's a, something that people Political scientists understood this, some of them at the time of McCain-Feingold, and said it was a bad idea to cut off the soft money to the parties for this reason. Uh, but I think that reality has sunk in uh, much more widely, and it's much more widely accepted among liberals, among conservatives, among judges who understand the system. Uh, so I agree that there is much more of an opening now for opening up more money going into the parties. Now, the, part of the problem, and Judge Easterbrook asked about that, this, is once the genie is out of the bottle and once all of these outside groups formed uh, and found it to be in their interest in various ways to act outside the party structure, how much of that money would come back in through these kinds of changes is an, an unknown question at this point. But as I said, I think a certain amount of it would, and I think that would make a, a marginal or maybe more meaningful than marginal difference to the organization of politics mm -hmm. and elections. Anyone else on the panel want to address that topic? I agree with Thank you. Let me turn to the microphone over there, and I want to tell you a, a limitation. There are very bright lights shining in my eyes. So even if I know the person at the microphone, I can't see your face. So all I can do is just point to the microphone. Over there. Thank you. Roman Bueller with the uh, Madison Coalition. Uh, 25 years ago, I was Newt Gingrich's uh, first committee counsel, uh, and I've had a chance to watch Congress's uh, dysfunction at, uh, up close. Um, my question uh, to anyone on the panel who would like to answer is, um, what about the idea uh, that led to the greatest, probably, achievement of Congress in American history, which was proposing the Bill of Rights? And the Bill of Rights happened because of pressure from the states. And basically, they said, Congress, you do something or we will. And in today's world, we've heard discussion about the RAINS Act to require that Congress approve regulations, but it's not going anywhere in Congress. There are now 500 state legislators, three governors, the general counsel, the RNC, and four past general counsels, and business groups like the American Farm Bureau, and 14 state legislative chambers that have endorsed an amendment called the Regulation Freedom Amendment, which would require that Congress approve major federal regulations. And if states could force Congress to propose the Bill of Rights, maybe the answer is to empower the states and get the states to force Congress uh, to, to basically break the deadlock and take some power back from the executive branch. Be interested in your thoughts about that idea. 
open it to, to anyone on the panel. Constitutional amendment requiring Congress to approve major regulations. Does anybody think we can define what a major regulation is? With respect, the amendment defines it as any, any regulation objected to by 25% of the House of the Senate. Aha, uh -huh. okay. Objected to by 25% of the House of the Senate? In a Gallup poll. <laughs> By, 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 because by, otherwise, uh, in the Senate, it will never come to the floor for a vote. <laughs> in a written statement delivered to the president, that's what the amendment says. It, it doesn't look like this one has attracted any takers. Sorry. Uh, Mike Stern, uh, with point of order. Uh, I'm also a former congressional lawyer. I, uh, I uh, take Mr. Berman's point that uh, many of the uh, the, the concerns about congressional weakness and dysfunction, uh, or its weakness versus the executive branch, uh, appear in situational uh, context in which the, po the political parties are going to be the salient issue. And so the Democrats will not care very much when it's the President Obama, and the Republicans will not care very much when it's President Bush. But I think, uh, and I'd like Mr. Berman's reaction to this, if you, if you take a member off camera, they would agree, uh, generally, with a, without regard to political affiliation, that this has been a problem for both parties and, and a general trend. And I'm wondering if there, uh, whether one way of uh, taking this out of the political, the immediate political situations would be to uh, reinstitute something like the Joint Committee on the Organization of Congress to look at this in a more broad way, uh, these issues in a, in a broader way, outside of immediate political controversies sort of the way that the commission created after the, the crisis in 2011 to a super committee to come back with a budget balancing, entitlement reforming, tax reforming uh, proposal, how, how that worked. In other words, I, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical, but... Um, Have, is, it, is it possible that Congress doesn't really want to exercise the authority that it should be exercising because they will have to take positions on issues that they can now duck? They can rail about in certain constituencies, but they don't have to vote on. I, I go back to... Um, I go back to the the issue of the war-making authority and the use of force. The notion that the Congress would sit there and scream and yell one way or another about Libya and Syria, but never choose to either authorize or disapprove of actions by the executive branch and to deny the, that authority to the executive branch to me, I mean, that's the most vivid case of it, but illustrative of we want to have our cake and eat it too. We don't want to be tied down with taking positions which could turn out to be unpopular uh, um, uh, through a really enhancing our true power to make, to have effects on policy. 
can, I, can I just add one little thing to the Libya story, which makes it even worse? Which is, it's, it's well known that the White House was discussing with members of Congress getting an authorization for the use of force, and the legislative leadership said, please don't make us vote on this. Please, we do not want this issue in front of us. And so it's not just that they were passive, they were actively saying, don't Absolutely. make us vote. In Syria, well, we saw, yeah. But, uh, mm -hmm. the, the, uh, the, the, the late, great John Hart Ely said in this very context that accountability is frightening stuff. Mm. Senator Mike. Your Honor, thank you. Uh, Art Mackember, I am uh, an attorney in Coeur d'Alene, currently running for the Idaho State Legislature in the House of Representatives. And so my question is, uh, built around this perception I have from Ms. Lee's comments that uh, along with an imperial presidency, as we see critiqued nowadays, we also appear to have imperial House leadership uh, and perhaps Senate leadership, if you look at Mr. Reid and some of the recent history. But as I read the actual, the, you know, the, the, the operator's manual here, if you will, it says each House may determine the rules of its proceedings and I don't see anything about committees or committee structures. And so my question to the panel is, what, what is the origin and history of these committees and their structures, and how could they be used potentially to help devolve power from the leadership? Uh, one thing that everybody from Tacitus on down has said, you cannot devolve power, you have to topple it. Well, th this is not a good thing for us. Uh, so is there something in the committee structure that we can use or some realignment of it to help the leadership, uh, you know, get off the, get off the diet okay. there? Okay, the question general to the panel is what changes in the committee structure would be helpful? On the, on the question of the, the history of committees, I mean, uh, committees began to be formed in Congress to make Congress more effective in uh, responding to the executive branch. You know, the co committees do strengthen Congress in that they allow Congress to I mean, consider issues in a more expeditious manner to con and then to propose solutions to the, to the Congress as a whole to mobilize Congress to act. Uh, and uh, can also uh, take advantage of uh, the uh, of, uh, information gathering capabilities at the committee level. Uh, to, uh, you know, inform Congress's actions. So co committees can strengthen Congress. Pa the power of committees has historically been at odds with the power of central party leaders. Like the times when committees are particularly strong have been also times when leaders in Congress have been relatively weak. Now, how to strengthen, how to strengthen committees? Uh, I think that, you know, uh, going back to the pr earlier proposal on, you know, maybe we need a new Joint Committee on the Organization of Congress, that uh, I, I do think there is a widespread sense in Congress that uh, the, the system is out of balance now and that, uh, that we need a restoration of regular order and that the leaders have become too strong. And I, I, th I think, you know, a, a, a close look at that might, uh, might be uh, beneficial. But uh, uh, it, 
in terms of strengthening in terms of strengthening committees vis-a-vis -vis the leaders, it's hard to do that when the leadership basically chooses the committee chairs. Committee chairs don't have a power base separate from the leaders the way they used to enjoy via the seniority system. I, I agree with uh, other comments on this panel that the seniority, re reviving the seniority system is a dead letter, but that used to be a way in which committees had, a, uh, you know, had an ability to act and to defy leaders. Uh, and, and uh, you know, to persist in that in, uh, d despite resistance from top leaders. They were not accountable to top leaders. So. Other members of the panel? <coughs> Mr. Berman, well, uh, the committees were a lot stronger in your time, at least at the beginning, than they are now. So absol absolutely true. Uh, and, uh, I mean, <clears throat> it started it may have started a little bit on the Democratic side while well, we were in control then uh, and with the class of 74 and that ability in the case of the totally, I mean, it, it came a bit out of the Civil Rights Movement where the House Rules Committee would not move civil rights legislation and all that. And so in a very exceptional case, the caucus as a whole could reject the senior person as chairman. Uh, it later on became a much more uh, centralized power with the uh, steering and policy committee and uh, dominated by the leadership uh, deciding who would be the chairman. Newt Gingrich took it to its finest point, if you call it that, when essentially he had what he viewed as a merit test. Who would be most effective who would project the best image for the Republicans in any particular committee chairmanship, and uh, and that would be the test. And so I guess what we're saying is merit tests aren't good for uh, uh, for for restoring power. But once you look at what's happening right now, all of a sudden the House, in the middle of this year, stopped passing appropriations bills, not because they couldn't pass them. There's no 60% rule in the House, a majority is going to prevail, but because they had committed to allowing a, the House to work its will. And a House Democrat decided on every single appropriations bill, I was going to induce an amendment talking about federal funding for the flag flying of the Confederate flag. And after South Carolina and all that stuff, that became an issue the Republican leadership wanted no one to have to vote on. And therefore, they stopped the entire appropriations process because of the threat of that amendment. So you could talk about its strong leadership now, but uh, it, 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 it could be a lot stronger. Uh, and uh, although I guess it's pretty strong when you can stop the appropriations process, uh, but it's because you were worried about up the politics because of the fight for control that is so, so dominates everything in, in the House political situation. My, my, my memory of House operations may be weak, but isn't that flag amendments stuff something that the Rules Committee used to be able to yes, prohibit? Yes, or it could today. But if you've said, we, unlike the Democrats when they control, are not going to pass rules that keep members from working their will on the appropriations process. So instead, you stop the appropriations process. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Other comments on the panel? Thank you. Uh, Harry Lewis from New York. Um, 
New York State has adopted a, uh, a system of governance in Albany called Three Men in a Room, which is where the governor of the state of New York gathers with the uh, Senate Majority Leader and the Speaker of the New York State Assembly, and they cut all the deals for the legislature and uh, in the legislative process, basically, in New York. And the actual members of the New York State Legislature seldom have to show up. And I guess my question to the panel is, is Congress now moving to New York's system of governance? That would be progress. <laughs> Well, since two of the three men in a room are now in prison or well on their way there, it's not clear. <laughs> so other, the answer is yes. <laughs> other comments within the panel? Well, first, I, I don't think John Boehner thinks that's how things work in the United States Congress. I mean, but to use this as an opportunity to make a, another point about the, the history of how things were done in the past in Congress, I think it's very important that we avoid a certain kind of nostalgia, which is that in the era in the 70s that we're talking about, you had such a different party configuration. So you had people crossing the aisle in both directions because you had moderate Republicans, moderate Democrats. So everything we talk about in terms of how the structure worked back then, you know, has to be understood as functioning within a universe in which the party configuration was just radically different. And so I think that if we have to face the reality, as I believe we do, that the party configuration of our era, and I mean not five years, but you know, the starting in the 1980s and continuing, is of these highly differentiated, ideologically purified political parties that are so polarized, then the question is which structures are going to work in this circumstance? And it's a mistake to think too, or to, you know, to reason too simply from it worked this way in the past, we had this sort of relationship between central authority and committee structure and think if you just translated that into the present, it would actually work the same way today, given the party configuration structure. Mm -hmm. Other comments? Um, well, I, I agree with that, that last point. It's a very good one. I'd also say, though, um, if we're going to have a test, uh, we, we need the test. And uh, whatever the motives of the Freedom Caucus, um, God works in <laughs> mysterious ways. I think the outcome is uh, uh, going to give us a, a, a test of a different arrangement of the House. It certainly, it's given us a, a, a better prospect for Congress uh, and the House generally. So um, we'll be able to see after a couple of years. Uh, otherwise, we would just keep on the old uh, system within this new context. And this uh, opens things up. I think we'll find that this system works much better. It'll be something like a fairly strong speaker with much uh, stronger committees. That's where it's, it's uh, shaping up. and. Uh, um, this would be a, a great contribution, maybe not intentional, of the, of the Freedom Caucus. Professor Lee? So on the, on the strength of leaders, you know, uh, the circumstances of Boehner's, the end of Boehner's tenure as speaker have 
I think led us to infer that the speakership in the House is weaker than it has been. I mean, under, under Boehner's tenure, the, the, the Republicans never at any point, despite the uh, Hastert rule violations, never lost procedural control of the House. And in fact, on all the occasions when the uh, a majority of the Republican Party appeared to have been rolled on legislation, the Republicans, to a person, had voted to bring those matters to the floor, knowing that they would pass with Democratic votes. So it, it, they, the leaders were authorized to take the actions that they took. It's just that many Republicans did not want to be recorded uh, in, uh, on final passage votes in voting in favor. But you know, so this speaks to, the, I think, the strength of the leaders, and it, I think it, it, in many ways, meshes nicely with some of the points that Mr. Berman was making about, you know, about the ways in which Congress likes to avoid uh, being held accountable for the actions that it takes. Uh, Joe Cosby from Washington, D.C. On, uh, on that note, I wanted to raise some issues about the transparency. I think Professor Lee's just described, to some degree, um, a form of, uh, it, to use Professor Pildes's uh, model, a form of um, lack of transparency that the real vote is to bring it to a vote, right? And so nobody's paying attention to that, so that in introduces a certain lack of transparency. It strikes me that a number of the things that uh, Mr. Weiner was talking about, um, single member oversight hearings, asking for lots and lots of information from agencies um, are all things that are out of the spotlight, out of, outside the fishbowl, and, and therefore there's a, a certain amount of lack of transparency in that. So um, I have a, qu a question for um, Professor Pilar. Do those kinds of things meet the, um, the, the proposal that you were suggesting on, as far as transparency, uh, you know, certainly in terms of process? Um, and also, uh, Professor uh, Grieva made a point that this seems to be a losing game, that the further we go along these lines, uh, it just keeps on getting moved out. We, we keep, uh, the, the, the public press is for greater transparency. We never seem to go to, back to lack of transparency. That strikes me to be uh, what at least some people are suggesting in the panel about what happened to, to Speaker Boehner. He had a procedure that um, involved a certain lack of transparency, that is no longer possible with a weaker speaker. So um, following Professor Grieva's point, is this just something that we keep expanding the things that we have transparency and the uh, battle to try to have some lack of transparency in order to make the system work is kind of a, an ever um, going on war and, and to some extent an ever losing war. Okay, Professor Caesar, then Professor Grieva, and you can also discuss the question whether the word transparency should be abolished. <laughs> Caesar, you said? You want me? Oh. Oh, I, was, I uh -oh. thought the questioner wanted to go to Professor Caesar. Or, okay. okay. Uh, I, I think he, uh, he uh, asked uh, you, okay, Richard, um, but um, while I'm on the floor, I'll, I'll take it just to say that um, uh, I have um, my degree of cynicism, too, about members of Congress uh, that was expressed. Um, yet, I think it goes too far, and certainly normatively it, it, it goes way too far, to, to suggest that the members of Congress don't care collectively about the status of their institution. Or if they do, um, they should receive our severe reprobation. Um, 
And I think if you actually look at uh, some of the members of the Congress, they do think about the, the Constitution occasionally. Um, and they, uh, they have been concerned with the, the power of Congress as a whole. Uh, there have been great people in, in our uh, history who have um, taken pride in their own institution. And it's just not Pollyannish to say that. I think that that's a fact. Our uh, 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 perspective, I think, should be to, to strengthen that, to ask them, even if we realize the temptation is to move away from this, to always agree election, but to ask them to consider the, the, the importance of, of, of Congress. And then to the extent possible where there is partisanship, and there always is, to use it on behalf of uh, de defending the powers of the institutions. Otherwise, um, we uh, will lose the balance of our institutions, which is really the core of uh, the American Constitution and our liberty. Okay, Professor Greva and then Professor Peldis. Uh, not only do I believe that the word transparency should be abolished, the thing itself should go with it. <laughs> um, it look, I'll say one word about the uh, uh, individual member oversight that Mr. Cosby uh, mentioned. There are, to my mind, two theories uh, of this. One is uh, which the, the one that Matt attributed to Naomi Rao, which is uh, Congress stops legislating uh, because that's inconvenient, uh, and the more power the agencies have, the more individual members of Congress have power to uh, mess with them and to do constituency services and so, so on and so forth. And that was sort of the um, delegation doctrine of the 1980s, I've really begun to wonder whether that is still true. Because Congress has by now uh, started delegating the means by which it used to discipline uh, agencies, and that includes in particular fiscal authority. There are more and more of these self-funding agencies. Look at the CFPB, that's all on autopilot. Why would Congress do that if the true reason for delegation is, ha, I get to backstop them um, at the end. So the alternative view, uh, which um, I think is nowadays prominently um, associated with my friend Chris Muth, is that a Congress that can no longer legislate can also not, at the end of the day, effectively oversee these agencies. Used to be the case in the good old days of Jamie Whitten and his, his committees um, that agencies could not get outside the bounds of the legislative compromise that sustained their power and their deals. This is no longer true. The EPA does not give a rip what the uh, sort of equilibrium point in Congress is. It just goes. And that is a really, really new phenomenon. And anything that one might think about sort of individual members being able to backstop agencies and that that might be an incentive for delegation, I think is by now opened a very serious question. So bring back John Dingle, because without John Dingle, agencies can't be dingleized. <laughs> so to be clear about my point or critique about transparency, transparency is, for me, an important democratic value, without question. The, the problem is that we are in a political culture in which, uh, for example, I've been told with members of Congress, any piece of legislation that has the word transparency in it cannot be opposed. People are terrified to oppose anything with the word transparency in it. And what I mean to be doing here is just pushing back against what I would call, you know, an overly romanticized idea about any one of our particular democratic values in isolation. 
So the question is not transparency, yes or no, on, uh, for me at least, but it's a more serious examination in particular context of, you know, where do we need transparency? What are the benefits in various contexts? Are they real? What are the costs? And I'll give you one concrete example, the Federal Advisory Committee Act, FACA, if any of you know about it, uh, which required transparency uh, in all the dealings of various federal advisory commissions, is a very bad statute in my view. It hamstrings the ability of these commissions to function. It makes it, the process so unwieldy for, I think, very little benefit. I think that's a statute that might be worth considering repealing not because transparency in general you know, is as bad as Michael seems to think, but because in that particular context, there are serious costs for very little public benefit. And what I want to do is at least provoke a serious discussion about where transparency is helpful and where it's counterproductive. Mr. Berman. Yeah, um, I sort of, your, your theory is, open covenants secretly arrived at, which I like. Um, <laughs> Let's go on the campaign trail together. Um, I just wonder, some of the important for just the continued functioning of government reasons, deals, had, had they not been, had all the back and forth not been contained and in a closed room, I'd suggest they never would have happened, and uh, and the results are open and and bemoaned or praised, whatever, depending on your perspective. But I I, I don't want to be I, I I was attributed as being more cynical than I really am about <laughs> that. I, it isn't that Congress doesn't care about the institution. It's just that it it I think. Generally, it cares about other things more. Hmm. Thank you. We are we're beginning to run short on time, so I hope, and there are people still at the microphone, so I hope that the, both the questions and the answers can be abbreviated. Thank you. Uh, is this on? Yeah, Paul Kaminar, Washington, D.C. I'm also a uh, senior fellow of the Administrative Conference and a member of its Judicial Review Committee. Uh, we have the Congressional Review Act, which is, gives Congress the power to veto uh, the regulation. Uh, the Reins Act, as we discussed briefly, would flip that and not allow the regulation to go in until Congress does approve it. Uh, Matt, I thought I heard you say that, that uh, the, some of these may be misguided. Uh, I'd like to hear from you or your panel, what's wrong with the Reins Act, which would give power back to the Congress where it belongs, and number two, the regulatory Accountability Act, which passed the House and is before the Senate, would give Your Honor the judicial review power to look at the agency's compliance with the Information Quality Act. So I think the judiciary needs to come in there too to basically make sure that these agencies are doing what they're told, rather than just a Chevron deference, they can get away with anything. That sounds about as sensible as allowing us yeah. to review referees' calls in NFL games. <laughs> so perhaps we'll just take the first part of the question. <laughs> Well, let, 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 me just, let, let me just take the Reins Act very, very briefly. Uh, for, for, for starters, uh, there have been uh, uh, constitutional questions uh, raised about the Reins Act. Uh, there are those who think that it's uh, tantamount to a, a legislative veto uh, uh, of the sort prohibited by the Chadha decision. I don't, I don't think those arguments actually are that strong. Um, uh, 
but I think that uh, uh, it's very difficult to imagine uh, Congress uh, seriously engaging uh, uh, complicated regulations in the very limited time allotted by the RAINS Act, which I think is 70 days. Uh, and uh, I, I just fear that uh, in practice uh, that it would uh, largely paralyze the administrative state. Bravo. <laughs> Oh, yeah. We're going over there. Billy Maximize Cole. the number of questions remaining. Yeah. Uh, Billy Cole, I'm the law clerk. Uh, my question is about the role of the federal courts in uh, shaping these incentives. I think uh, Mr. Weiner expressed some skepticism about the court's competence and ability to do that. But um, it seems to me that any changes that are going to come uh, will also need to not only come from uh, the internal aspects, but the external pressure from uh, the coordinate branches. So I I'd just be curious to hear. Uh, response from the panel to uh, the role of the courts in this, because I think they probably have a strong role, if not a constitutional duty, to uh, police these issues. Perhaps that's in part addressed to me. I, I, and the reason for, for my flip response to the last question, I think the courts are very good at enforcing uh, articulable rules. If somebody has written a rule down, the court can compare uh, the rule against what's happened in the world and come up with a solution. Uh, when the court is given a task of, say, looking at whether regulations costs are worth their benefits or much more open-ended things, that turns out to be both unsuited to the, the background and understanding of the judges, and it's really unsuited to the nature of the judicial process, which is a contemplative rather than a policy-making structure. Judges, judges can do some things badly, but if you want courts to do things well, they really have to compare a, a textual decision of some kind against a record about what's happening in the world. That at least is my view. Perhaps members of the panel see this otherwise. Okay, let's go over there. <laughs> Andy Redleaf, a non-lawyer, unaffiliated friend of the Federalist Society. Um, Mr. Berman um, brought up without the name um, Simpson Bowles, and at the time there was also Rivlin de Medici and, and the Gang of Six or Seven or Eight proposal, all of which were very similar, and I believe all of which had pretty broad-based but non-passionate support. Um, can we explain the failure of Simpson Bowles in terms of things like fragmentation and hyperpartisanship, division of power, closely contested power, and so forth, can can we explain those by the things the panel has pointed out, or and if not, um, why not? You know, why didn't Simpson Bowles go anywhere? Who wants to tackle that? Yeah, that's Um, All right, Mr. Berman, you're... Remember, in Simpson... I, I get confused by all the different things we've created. If Simpson-Bowles was the that larger commission that I made reference to earlier, on, uh, it had the additional incentive of saying, essentially, that this 
absurd, ridiculous sequestration across the board that would destroy defense spending, cut a lot of discretionary spending, would come into effect unless they agreed. And then I go back to the professor, Professor Lee. In the end, some, some folks overcame the pressure, or, but in the end, the fight for control in the next election, I think, and which party would be labeled with which unhappy uh, uh, change, and whether it's an entitlement reform or a cut in defense spending or whatever, that, 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 that strong concern trumped a very important concern of trying to get some sense into the budget process with long-range visions and, and changes that everybody in private sort of thinks we need to have. Thank you. I'm, I'm going to take the panel a little bit over time. I think we have time for two questions if they are both brief and the answers are brief. So, Hi, I'm Sam Miarelli from Orlando. And I'd like to challenge the premise of the whole panel. I mean, I'm reminded of that Rush will Lim not lead to brief answers. And, well, I'm, I'm reminded of Rush Limbaugh you know, saying, you know, America set free, Congress in recess. And I wonder, is congressional inaction really such a bad thing? <laughs> so this is a version of Will Rogers' claim that no man is safe while Congress is in session. Comment, briefly. Well, a brief comment, uh, if Congress isn't there, then everything's in the hand of the president. I can imagine Rush Limbaugh jumping up and down and applauding that. <laughs> Last question. Uh, judge Mary DiGennaro, elected Court of Appeals judge from Ohio, and I will defer to my judicial colleague to hit the red light at any time. <laughs> um, Professor um, Pildes touched on this very naive point and glossed it over in his initial comments. Um, is hyper ideologically pure gerrymandered House seats on bo in both parties, the mother of these problems that we've, we've explored today? No, <laughs> but I'll, I, I'll explain just briefly. So I, is, it I, an I uncle? is it an uncle or some <laughs> form of relative? Second cousin, maybe. <laughs> um, so I hate the gerrymandering system. I think it's absolutely pathological that we are the only country with election districts that puts the power to design districts in the hands of the people who are the most self-interested. There are lots of reasons to change that. But it's not the cause of the primary cause of this polarization. One of the things that's been demonstrated is that people geographically now are much, much more segregated in a way that tracks partisan political preferences. People who are liberal move to city, single people, people who are less religious. The urban areas are overwhelmingly concentrated with liberals and Democrats. The rural areas of the country are even more concentrated with people who are conservative. Uh, and you can't redesign election districts in a way to turn overwhelmingly homogenous areas into heterogeneous ones uh, because of the nature of geographic self-segregation that is a product of you know, movement of people over many decades. So that's what drives primarily the, the, the pattern that you see. I mean, at the state level, there are very few states that are up for play in presidential elections compared to in previous decades. 
so that the states are not gerrymandered. There's, so it, it, it contributes maybe a bit, but no, it is not the primary driver of this. Any other responses on the panel? Well, please join me in thanking the panel for a good presentation.